Hey, welcome Life Church Livonia. If we have not yet met, my name is Alex. I'm one of the pastors here at Life Church Livonia. And if this is your first time, we are so glad you are here. We have been expecting you. We have been praying for you. We've been hoping you would come. So thank you so much for joining us today. We are in a series right now on mental health, a series we're calling with all my mind. The greatest commandment that Jesus says is to love the Lord our God with all of our hearts, minds, souls, and strength. But in a world so filled with mental health issues and in lives of our own so filled with mental health issues, the question is how do we meet God in these places? How can I love God with all my mind when I'm struggling with mental health issues? Not only how do I love him, but how do I receive his love? How do I meet God, not just on the mountaintops, but also in the valleys? Throughout this series, last week we talked about how we meet God in anxiety, and today we are talking about how to meet God in depression. Now, like I said last week, I just want to preface this sermon with a simple disclaimer. These topics are massive just incredibly massive. And there's no way in a 35-minute sermon we're going to be able to touch on every nuance and complexity of these topics. But that's not really our goal. There's so much great literature on anxiety and depression and ADHD. But our hope today is really to connect to God's Word, to connect to each other, and to be able to connect to some resources that will help us both spiritually and mentally. Now, just like last week, there's going to be things we simply can't include today, and there's also going to be tools we do talk about today that we have included in the digital bulletin for you. Every week, there's great resources there. Please, please, please take a moment. The link is in the video description. Please take a moment to check that out because we've really curated some great resources for you, and we want you to get the most benefit you possibly can from this sermon. Now, I am not a mental health professional. I'm a pastor. I know much more about theology than I do about psychology. But there are many mental health professionals at our church. And so each week in this series, I'm being joined by one of those professionals to help me teach on that topic and provide a clinical perspective. Last week, I was joined by my wife, Amber Rahill, and this week, I'm joined by Rick Gutterson, who I'm so pumped to be joined by today. Rick is a longtime life churcher. He's a professional therapist and leadership consultant. He specializes in grief therapy. He ran a nonprofit for many years locally called New Hope that helps people find healing and hope after loss. And today, we have the privilege of talking about depression mm -hmm. and Toy Story 4. Of course. And if you know Rick, that says a lot about him right there. So Rick, could you just introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about why you agreed to help me teach on such a heavy topic like depression? Yeah, you know, I realized that um, I'm usually the world's least popular speaker. Uh, <laughs> hey, here's the guy that talks about grief. Here's the guy that talks about depression. Um, so I fully acknowledge that, right? But that being said, we're going to talk about some really heavy things today, but yes. we're also going to have... Um, a way to talk about it. I think that's really engaging for you. So um, you mentioned movies earlier. I love movies. I love talking about movies. I love connecting movies to mental health. Um, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to jump back in our DeLorean. Hey! We're going back in time like Michael J. Fox. There we go. I want to go to the year 2006. So 2006. This is like the advent of YouTube. Mm. Oh my gosh, I've wasted way too many hours of my life <laughs> on this. But anyways, um, MySpace, huge. On top mm. of the world from a social media standpoint. <laughs> Facebook's kind of on the way up. The Office, Ooh. huge show, is in season two. Uh, love that show. I hope that you guys too, because it's just so much fun. Yeah. Um, but 2006 was also a really hard year in my life. It was the year that 
realized that I no longer saw purpose in living. Mm. And it was the year that I didn't feel like my life needed to continue. Mm. And I fell into this deep, dark depression. I didn't feel like my life had any significance. I didn't feel like anyone would care mm. if I wasn't around anymore. And it was such a dark place to be in. I'm sure that some of you guys might be able to relate with that or that you know somebody that relate with that. And whether they're feeling that weight of suicidal ideation or just the mm. deep heaviness of depression, it's a scary place to be in when you don't know if someone's there to pull you out of it. Mm. I was really grateful that God brought people into my life to come alongside me, to help listen to my pain, to listen to the things I was struggling with. And over the course of a couple of years, really began to kind of come out of that hole and um, starting to see value and purpose and, and hope again, mm. which I did not have for quite a few years. And in that is when I started switching career paths and I decided like, I want to dedicate my life to coming alongside other people in the midst of their pain and helping them find hope the way that other people had come alongside me. And so I actually began a, a ministry internship. I went back to school and got my degree in social work. Like you mentioned, Alex, I, I worked at the nonprofit, helping people grieve and process their pain after a loss. And then uh, had a major life transition. We adopted our son, Jackson. I love that boy so much. It kind of necessitated a scheduling change. So I retired from the nonprofit, was a stay-at-home dad for 18 months which kind of brings a loneliness and depression to that 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 world that you don't feel like you understand as well. Mm. Um, but then doing that, I started doing something that fit my schedule more, which is private practice therapy, doing individual therapy. So I could just come alongside people on a much deeper level individually and grow with them and see them kind of find hope in the midst of struggle and loss and, and, and challenges as well. And so I'm really grateful for that. But I also, I think about this, Alex, a lot. Oftentimes we tell our stories past tense, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Here's something that was in my past. Here's how I overcame it. And then ta-da. I'm right? so great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Depression doesn't always work that way. Yeah. So in full disclosure, in summer of 22, I was diagnosed with a really serious heart condition. I didn't know if my life was going to continue, to be yeah. honest. I was in the hospital for six days and it was really scary. And with that brought this heaviness and darkness that I hadn't felt in quite some time. Mm of this uncertainty of this unknown future, the anxiety about every little noise that your body makes. It was a very scary time. And so I just want you to know, like I'm working through that stuff and it's been you know, great to have professionals and friends and even the support of this church to navigate that stuff. But depression doesn't always work with a nice clean bow at the end of it when mm -hmm. we, you know, it's a struggle sometimes. And so it can come and go based on a lot of things that we're gonna talk about today. But I just want you to know that if you're struggling with that at home um, or in church today, you're, you're not alone. And we're gonna speak to that because we want you to know that there's help available mm -hmm. and there's hope again. Thanks, Rick. I'm really grateful for you. Yeah. I'm glad you're here. Thank you for your vulnerability. Thank you. You know, as a pastor, I hear people say the word depressed a lot. You know, it can be as silly as, oh, they didn't have my favorite bagels at the store. I'm so <laughs> depressed. Or, oh, did you see that episode last night? It made me so depressed. Oh. Or, you know, things like, of that nature. But it can also be quite serious. And so, yeah. you know, it, it, it's kind of a lot of mental health terms right now are cultural buzz, buzzwords. Yeah. And I'm just wondering, as a clinician, when you say the word depressed or depression, what is it you're really talking about there? I think it's important to clarify, like you said, like we exchanged the specific word of depression with sadness so mm. much. This movie made me feel depressed. Well, actually, it made us feel sad. Right, right, right. right. Um, so, so depression is going to be a, a set of symptoms that come with it. And I think it's really important to clarify, like, before getting into like the clinical diagnosis and stuff, I just want to use a couple words that like come with it. Mm. Depression feels heavy. Mm. Depression, depression feels dark. Yeah. It feels lonely. It also feels very slow. Yeah. Like the world is operating at one pace and you're at a different pace. 
So those aren't clinical words, but those who have felt depression know exactly what that feels like. It's a yeah. heaviness that's whole, so hard to describe. So I think really what, what we're going to do is we're going to put some words up on the screen here. Um, and as we do that, before I jump into the, some of the specific like clinical diagnosis of depression, I want to kind of throw out some caution, right? The temptation anytime we start talking about diagnosis is, is to self-diagnose, right? Yeah. Here's the 10 <clears throat> checklist and I meet seven of them, so therefore. Right, right. right. Or worse, we start to go, oh, Jimmy over there, like he's definitely depressed. Look at, he gets <laughs> eight of the criteria. Right. While that can be helpful, the goal isn't to self-diagnose or to diagnose to someone else in the room right now. It's actually just to create awareness, to understand what's going on. And if that helps you, if that creates an awareness that, then that's really helpful for us. So um, when we're talking about depression, it's really important to understand like, some of the differences, right? So based on how many of the criteria that someone maybe struggles with or is experiencing is gonna determine if this is mild depression, moderate depression, severe depression. Okay. It's also going to depend on like the longevity. So if I'm experiencing mm. acute, intense depression in a short-term season of life for a couple of weeks, that's going to be one form of depression. Yeah. But if I've experienced chronic depression over the course of a couple of years, Working through that and diagnosing that's going to be a very different form of depression. Right. So it's a lot of it is based on the significance of or the quantity of symptoms we feel. Yeah. The significance of those symptoms and, and then how long those symptoms last. That makes sense. Right. So it's really important to recognize all of those different factors um, that play a role in our depression. Yeah. And we're going to show some of those symptoms on the screen right now. And Rick, as we were talking about this, it was really interesting. We were talking about uh, that depression isn't necessarily a source. It has a source, right? And so we talked about different things. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. So if we think about like the depression as a set of biological symptoms, then we want to understand like Let's be more specific with those symptoms. So if I'm feeling that that lost interest in um, activities, or if I'm feeling slow and lethargic, or you know suicidal ideation, all these different things, we want to be more specific and go like, what is what is going on that maybe is uh, leading to the depression or to those depressive symptoms, right? So is is our depression rooted in loss? Mm -hmm. Maybe we have experienced the death of a loved one. I mean, that's such a heavy, intense pain that can overwhelm. Right. But also, this is the part that people don't think about. Grief is a response to loss and not just to death. Mm. So we have all experienced a lot of losses in life and we don't often equate the feeling that comes with that loss as grief. We jump to depression mm. because loss incorporates many depressive symptoms. But sometimes something like a breakup or a divorce, a major job loss, a huge medical diagnosis, right. um, addiction, incarceration, infertility. Yeah. There's so many losses that we experience even on an everyday basis yeah. And if we never grieve those losses, they can start to really build up and create very strong depressive symptoms in us. Yeah. Right. There's other things, though, I think that are really common. Like maybe your depression is related to loneliness and emptiness of feeling like everyone around you has a relationship and you don't. And that weight that you carry is overbearing. Sometimes it's repressed anger. We feel so angry and the anger and the energy that comes from it is supposed to create change in our lives and it's not working and it creates this helplessness yeah. and that helplessness starts to morph into a hopelessness. Right. And a lot of people, their depression is rooted in shame. Mm. There's something about them that they do not like. There's self-hatred, there's low self-worth. Maybe it's something like themselves, like a body image issue. I know it can be weight for some people. It can be something about the way you look. Mm -hmm. Full disclosure, I... um. <laughs> 
silly example, but I have two really crooked toes, one on each foot. It's my second toe. For some reason, God designed my feet so that my second toe would be longer than my first toe. And then as a result, my feet grew out of my shoes and it makes a 45 degree angle. <laughs> and for years, I would not wear sandals or walk around bare feet because I was so insecure. Mm. But that never processing that led to a lot of other feelings of shame in my life for years. Mm. I just didn't feel like I was functional and I was you know, um, struggling with that. So shame sometimes is something that happened to you, something that you've done as well. Yeah. It creates a lot of that feeling of heaviness and darkness that we struggle with in depression. So I think being specific with some of the depression that we're experiencing is really important, not for a diagnosis or for label, but for healing, which is what we're looking for. 100%. 100%. And um, you also mentioned <coughs> as we were talking too that some of these things are postpartum depression is a little bit different. Could you tell me just a little bit about that? Yeah. So part, thank you for bringing that up. Postpartum depression is really kind of covers a lot of those things, right? Yeah. We've, we've sensed a loss of identity transitioning into motherhood or, or full-time parenthood. There's the biological stuff that definitely creates a lot of depression. There's a lot of shame in both the way our bodies are changing. Also like constant comparison with other parents and how they're mm. raising their babies. And postpartum <clears throat> depression is such an isolated world for people in mm. depression, along with some of the other factors that is there's just such an intensity to that. Right? People are starting to talk about it more, but it's still a huge problem that we need to surface to say like, it's okay to struggle with depression when you've just had a baby or even a year yeah. or two in raising a parent. Yeah. I will tell you from personal experience, raising a baby by yourself at home all day long when you've come from another yeah. fast-paced job is yeah. like incredibly mind-altering and it's hard to process. So hard. And I don't even have the biological factors that women have yeah. when they're raising their babies so and stuff. Hard. So it was it was very challenging. So up to this point, we've been talking about folks who are struggling with depression. And if that's you, hopefully we've hit on some of the things you're feeling really deeply. Yeah. Our hope was to help you feel seen and know that that we're trying to meet God in all of these different kinds of places. But we haven't yet talked about folks who maybe are not struggling with depression who are watching this, and maybe they know someone who is and they want to be helpful. What are some of the things that uh, folks who are not struggling with depression can do and maybe things we shouldn't do as we're meeting with our brothers and sisters who are struggling? Yeah, this is a hard one. I got, I'm going to get on your cases a little bit here, okay? So just <laughs> forgive me. I'm asking for grace. The worst thing that we can do is try to cheer them up. Avoid that temptation at all costs. Mm. There's this scripture in Proverbs, it's Proverbs 25, 20. And it just says that singing cheerful songs to a person with a heavy heart is like taking someone's coat in cold weather or pouring vinegar in their wound. Mm. It just creates more pain. So as Christians and as members of a church, we have to learn how to be comfortable with people's pain. Mm. And oftentimes when we try to cheer people up, it's because of our own discomfort with yeah. their pain. Yeah. And all it does is say, you don't get me to that person. Right. And they isolate and it magnifies their depressive symptoms. So we need to engage, listen, listen to their stories, um, seek to understand versus like offer solutions. Sometimes there's yeah, practical things, but the emotions good. override those logical things. So meeting them in that pain is the most important thing that we can do. And then I, I didn't mention this before, but avoid the you shoulds. <clears throat> and avoid the at least. Those comparison things always add more pain, even if they come from the best intentions. No more you shoulds, no more at leasts. That's just a couple of quick phrases that we're tempted to use. That's really helpful. And I think the bottom line is we always wanna communicate love over fear yes. of their symptoms, fear of their condition, fear of maybe how they might overwhelm us. And yeah. we wanna go, hey, God loves you, I love you. I don't have all the answers, but I'm here. Yeah. You know, and I think that's so good. Can I share one thing real quick? Go ahead. The, one of the fears that's very common is if someone, if we're concerned that by mentioning suicidal ideation to somebody, that it might actually make them think about it, 
they're already thinking about this. Mm. So us bringing it up is actually drawing a light that we care versus being scared to mention something like that. Yeah, you know, asking about those good. things and talking about it is really, really important. So I want to encourage you to, to not be afraid of the world of depression, instead yeah. to engage and to love people through it. Well, thanks so much for sharing, Rick. Thank you for your insight. And as we said last week, mental health struggles are not just modern day struggles. They are universal human struggles across all human history. And that includes people in the Bible. Before we jump into our text today, I clarified this last week. I'm going to do it every week. It's important for us to hear. It would be inappropriate for us to truly diagnose a biblical character with some kind of ironclad diagnosis because diagnoses come from both observing symptoms and self-disclosure of someone's inner world. And most of the time in scripture, we don't get a self-disclosure of someone's inner world. Sometimes we do, I think of Jeremiah and Lamentations, but most of the time we just get to witness their behavior and see how God meets them. So in the same way that it would be inappropriate to draw some kind of ironclad definition diagnosis from just seeing the symptoms, it would also be inappropriate to ignore the symptoms totally and just go, that can't be it. And so what we're gonna do today is we're gonna look at a biblical character and we're gonna view some of the symptoms this person's exhibiting and we're gonna draw some inferences in that about their mental state and how God meets them in that. Yeah. We could have used several scriptures for today. We talked about perhaps David and the Psalms. We talked a lot about Jeremiah and the book of Lamentations. But ultimately for our purposes today, we landed on looking at the prophet Elijah. And so the question is, who is Elijah? Well, Elijah is a prophet of God. He prophesied during a wicked reign. This king Ahab, his wife Jezebel, they were really not followers of God. In fact, they advocated for this idol worship of a God named Baal. Part of worshiping Baal was child sacrifice. Part of it was prostitution. And they introduced all these wicked and detestable things back into Israelite culture and worship. And as an act of protest and to call Israel to repentance, Elijah prays that it would stop raining for three years so that the people might repent. And you know what? It does. Which, as you can imagine, caused massive food shortages, huge droughts, people are hungry. And Elijah was hoping that this discomfort might draw them back to God. And it doesn't. So this all culminates, as, as you can imagine, Elijah was on the most wanted list. He had people looking to kill him for three years, just patrol after patrol. And it finally culminates in him coming out of the shadows and doing this public challenge to King Ahab. He says, listen, let's, let's do a WWE God versus God Smackdown once and for all, yes. okay? We're going to build these altars and the God that calls down fire from heaven, that's the real God. Ahab accepts. So they build these altars publicly. They prepare the sacrifices on them. And from morning until evening, the prophets of Baal, 450 of them, are cutting themselves as blood sacrifices, are crying out, are dancing, are wailing, are ripping their clothes. Nothing happens. Elijah decides that it's time for him to go now. And so he not only prepares the altar out of stones, not only puts wood on it, not only puts a sacrifice on it, he digs a moat around it and drenches the sacrifice in water so the moat fills up. He prays a simple prayer asking that God would show that he's the true God to lead the people back to repentance. And a pillar of fire comes from heaven, consumes the sacrifice, the wood, the stone, and all the water in the moat. And it's this incredible, public, powerful, unequivocal victory that God is who he says he is, that Baal is false, and Yahweh is real and true. Elijah had been praying for years that the people would repent, and now there's proof. And this is what happens next. 
It says, Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. The miracle didn't work. The nation doesn't repent. Elijah's been running for his life for years. And after he proved once and for all that God's the only true God, there's not a national wave of repentance, just a renewed death threat on his life. And this is what happens next. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. While he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, he came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. So Elijah goes out into the desert, a place that's famous for everything dying. He brings no food, no water, and he falls asleep praying that he won't wake up. But God doesn't answer that prayer. Instead, he does this. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. So God starts by meeting Elijah in this dark place of suicidal ideation. He, meet, he begins by just meeting his most basic needs. He makes sure Elijah has food, makes sure he has water, makes sure he gets enough rest. And then Elijah travels to Mount Horeb, also called Mount Sinai. This is the mountain where God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses. And Elijah goes hoping somehow that he can meet God in this dark place and that somehow, some way, he'll get some direction and relief. And God does indeed meet him there. This is what happens. There he went into a cave and spent the night and the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and are now are trying to uh, put your prophet's death with the sword. I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord for the Lord is about to pass by. So God comes to Elijah and asks a question. What are you doing here? Now, why is God asking a question? Is it because he doesn't know the answer? I highly doubt it. I think he's asking this question because he wants Elijah to answer. He wants Elijah to know I'm interested and I want to hear what's on your heart. And Elijah does exactly that. He talks about his faithfulness. He talks about Israel's faithful, faithlessness. He talks about the hardship, about how he's been hunted and how he's being hunted. And then he says that he's alone. He's the only one left who's doing the right thing and following God. After this, God tells Elijah he's going to pass by. And there's a famous scene where wind rips through the mountains. And then an earthquake happens. <clears throat> And then fire comes out of nowhere. All these cataclysmic moments calling back to different major movements of God and miracles of God throughout the Old Testament. But God doesn't come to Elijah in any of these cataclysmic moments. He comes in the translation of the NIV is a gentle whisper, but in the literal translation, in the sound of silence. And God meets Elijah in this unexpected silence. And this is how the Lord replies to him. The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Haziel king over Aram. 
also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshai, king over Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel Mahola, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Haziel, and Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and whose mouths have not kissed him. Now God's response is interesting. Elijah has some legitimate problems. The Israelites have indeed rejected God. Jezebel indeed has put many prophets to death and is seeking Elijah's life right now. But Elijah is not the only prophet left. He has this combination of real traumas and, and dire situations and some faulty thinking at the same time. And so God corrects Elijah's faulty narratives and then sends him to other people who are also God followers. He's had all this negative experience with the leader of Israel, so God sends him to anoint other leaders who are going to do what God wants to do. And then he gives Elijah an apprentice, someone he can mentor, and where he can pour out all these things he's learned, knowing that, man, I am indeed not alone in all of this. And I think that's what really God is trying to say to Elijah is, hey, you're not alone. There's even 7,000 people you don't even know about who have the same heart as you. And you don't see it all, but I see it all. In your story, Elijah, it's not over yet. So Rick, as a therapist, what are some of the things you're seeing in this text that would indicate Elijah's struggling with depression? Well, I just want to share a thought that popped in my head when you saying that. The end of that story just shows the importance and the healing power of connection. Mm -hmm. I think it's really powerful yeah. and uh, ultimately giving him purpose in his life is cool. I, I want to, um, there's two things that stood out to me. The first thing that stands out to me is that there's a legitimate threat right. to Elijah's safety. There's, there's this traumatic experience that he's lived in this fight or flight response for a long time. Yeah. And that's going to create a, a depression that working through that is very different from mm -hmm. like correcting faulty narratives or working through some of these other things. I mean, it's, it, it really involves establishing like a psychological safety and security before mm -hmm. we feel safe enough to start to open up and work through our stuff. And mm -hmm. so working through depression that's rooted in trauma where there's a threat to your safety or you've witnessed something that's traumatic like that is going to be very different mm -hmm. from some of the other things that we're, we're talking about here. So I think it's really important to recognize that part of the narrative. The, the second part that I see though, is that there's quite a few like potential like depressive symptoms that we see in there yeah. that either Elijah outlines or based on the way that God meets his needs that would meet the DSM <clears throat> criteria for depression. So, I mean, we see major fatigue or loss of energy yeah. is a massive symptom. Um, loss of appetite. He's no longer hungry. God shows up and meets that need. Mm -hmm. uh, feelings of worthlessness. He does not feel like he has purpose anymore. Right. Um, and then he expresses it, the suicidal ideation. He says that, I pray to die. Take my life. I no longer want to live. Right. So just those criteria alone would qualify for mm -hmm. um, some type of depressive disorder. Um, but I think helping that is going to be um, really important. So the other thing I, I saw, and you mentioned narratives earlier. There's this message that's running through his head in addition to the trauma that is exaggerating his uh, feelings of depression. Mm -hmm. And the way he said it, I think you said it was, I'm no better than my ancestors. And I can't think of the last time I've used that well, phrase. I say it all the time. You you know? all the time. Yeah. <laughs> right, my ancestors. I don't hear that too much in therapy, but I think there's a modern day translation that a lot of us can wrestle with, which is, I am not enough. Yeah. 
I am a failure. Mm -hmm. And that's a message that so many of us run through our heads all the time. And if we don't take that thought under control or even recognize that it's creating havoc, it creates mm -hmm. all these really difficult emotions and all these different actions that are really in, important to recognize. Now, one of the reasons I love this text is we really see God be Elijah's mighty counselor. Mm -hmm. and, and God does these different things that now we know from brain science and from psychotherapy, like are exactly the right things to do. Go figure, you know, God knows. <laughs> so if, if Elijah came into your office, Rick, and he's like, man, I'm trying to follow God, but I, I feel like I've totally failed and I'm burnt out in ministry and I don't know what to do. I don't want to lose my faith, but I do want to lose my life. Like, what do I do? You know, yeah. what are some of the things that you might take Elijah through here? I think it's important to recognize that like, we're going to cover it very, you know, abbreviated version yeah. of this, but working with someone like Elijah would take months or even years yeah. because of the trauma and the narratives and all these experiences. It's, we can't microwave that process, yeah. right? But one of the tools I think that we can do, and Amber did a great job talking about this last week. Um, she, she introduced like the cognitive model, right? Yeah. So I want to look at that and take it a couple steps further, but I like to look at it at the end result. Like what are the actions that we have or the inactions? What are the behaviors? Like in this case, we're looking at these depressive symptoms or these depressive yeah. behaviors, right? So the inaction or the loss of appetite or right. the, the way that we're behaving, right? Um, maybe I haven't left my room in months or I haven't done right. these things in months, right? The, the behind the scenes thing is there's always a feeling that's generating that action or that inaction. Right. So recognizing that what is it that I'm feeling? So the common example I like to think about it, even though it's not necessarily exactly related to depression, is like I felt angry, so then I punched a wall. Right. I might have done that in high school. Sorry. <laughs> um, so, so you can see a feeling always drives an action or always drives an inaction. But beneath that feeling, though, is a thought or a thinking pattern. And often those are very negative or disruptive or um, Amber talked a lot about like the cognitive distortions, right? It's a way of thinking that generates these harmful or painful feelings that right. then drives these actions. But I want to take that process that she introduced last week a step further. Yeah. Because one of the reasons, one, one of the questions that we often have is like, why do I keep thinking these things? We don't yeah. always want to go, hey, you know what's fun to thought to think about is not being good enough or like being a failure, <laughs> right. right? That's not a thought we actively want to select and right. choose. Right. Why are we gravitating towards those types of thoughts so often? And it's often because of our beliefs. Mm. The, what do we believe about ourselves, about the world around us? And I think that there's kind of three E's that really shape or confirm the belief systems yeah. that we either grew up as children in or are kind of doubling down with as adults. So the first ones are, are our life experiences. You know, mm -hmm. what did we grow up in? What are some of the environments? This is where his trauma kind of plays a role. Yep. These, these events in our life create a set of beliefs or confirm a set of beliefs that we have. Yeah. The second one is our education. It's just the things that we learned. And mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be in an academic setting. It can be just from scrolling social media or yeah. talking to friends or yeah. the comparison trap they always follow about how do I measure up to the other people I see their perfectly filtered images online, right? right? So that education that we're bombarding, the messages that we input. And then the third one is the environment that we're in. So I might feel confident in one environment and I shape, I shape or I change my environment and it shapes me in a way that I feel more shameful or more regrets or more angry in. And all that's changed is my environment. Mm -hmm. And so... Not only does that create our beliefs, but they confirm our beliefs. Mm -hmm. And it's also the way we begin to start changing our beliefs. Mm -hmm. Because it's not just a matter of changing our thinking patterns. If we never go to those core beliefs and yeah. start to change the way that we believe, yeah. we never experience the long-term healing we need to grow and to process that. So, yeah. um, And I, I want to illustrate this because 
I like to use really clinical language, as we've yeah, already established, right. right? And so there's no more clinical way to explain this concept <laughs> than I want you at home to visualize that you're holding a spork. Very clinical tool. Yeah, yeah. Very, right? Of course. But not just any spork. How many of you seen the movie <laughs> Toy Story 4? Yeah, so good. I love this, this movie so much. And hot take, this might be my favorite of all the Toy Stories. That's bold. Very, very hot take, That's right? That's bold. But one of the reasons is because of this powerful story of a character named Forky. So Forky, for those who haven't seen the movie, is this character that this five-year-old or six-year-old Bonnie creates. She's trying to adjust to this world in kindergarten. She has these scraps of things that came out of the trash in order for her to kind of like make this kind of toy. Mm -hmm. And so she creates this fork and she brings it home. And because it's Toy Story, it's now a toy and it comes alive. And Woody's there and all the other characters there. And Forky is just freaking out. And all Forky is consumed with doing is trying to find a way to return to the trash because that's where he came from. Right. And so everything about his life is, I need to get in the trash. I need to get in the trash. And he keeps jumping in it to the point where it's like wreaking havoc on poor Woody. He's yeah, exhausted, yeah, right? Yeah. And so all he wants to do over and over again is get in the trash to the point where he keeps escaping. He gets out of the RV and they go on this wild, you know, kind of journey where Woody's trying to find Forky. And Forky keeps, you know, just this message, I am trash, I am trash. And Woody finally has this moment where he goes, you are not trash you are bonnie's toy and he says look at your foot look at the bottom of your foot whose name is there mm. and it says bonnie mm. and forky has this aha moment of his entire life has been consumed by i am trash so therefore i belong in the trash and he finally has this moment of i am bonnie's i belong to bonnie mm. how do i get back to bonnie mm. and the whole course of the movie changes to his whole prime like his whole existence is I make Bonnie happy, how do I get back to her? Yeah. And it's such a powerful story. I that love that. It story. is so powerful. It is so powerful. And Forky's narrative moved from I am trash to I belong to Bonnie. Yeah. And if I were to describe what it seems Elijah's narratives are, it would be I'm alone and I'm a failure. And I'm just wondering this morning, what are the narratives running through your head? Is it I'm trash? Is it I'm not enough? Is it I'm defective? Maybe it's nothing will ever change. Is it I've lost too much? Is it that I'm unlovable? Whatever your narrative is, I want you to know that God made you and God loves you. It is his name on the bottom of your foot and you belong to God. You do not belong to these other things. That it is God who wants to create the narrative for your life, that he might be in a deep love relationship with you that you were made for. And just like he told Elijah, God today wants you to know you are not alone because you belong to him. So as Rick and I were talking about this, one of the ways that we move out of this old and faulty core belief, this narrative that's destructive, and into a narrative that's constructive, is we need to reframe. And we don't just need to reframe on positive thoughts, but in truth. Hmm. And so, Rick, would you kind of preface some of the work that needs to lead up to this activity, which we've included in the digital bulletin, by the way, and then lead us in this activity? Yeah. So one of the things I, I forgot to mention earlier is like when we're talking about narrative, I like to summarize it. So combination of our beliefs and our thoughts that, yeah. that create those narratives. It's the story that we run through our head. Yeah. And so I think in order to recognize those stories, we don't always know what we're believing or what we're thinking, yeah. but we can recognize what are, how am I acting? 
What am I feeling? And so we can reverse engineer that process. We've yeah. included a couple tools. Uh, there's a feelings wheel in the bulletin that helps you really identify specific feelings mm. that you might be feeling. And then I just included a worksheet, a worksheet that I, I use with clients. It's just five steps to processing difficult emotions and helping like question like, what am I feeling? Why am I feeling that yeah. way? How can I release this feeling? Mm. What I can do to work through it. So I think that's really important to put that in there. So that's some yeah. of the, the work that we can start to do with that. But I think a lot of it is starting to recognize like you know I have to like actually let those feelings out first yeah right? we talked about being safe for people to express those emotions because it, it would be easy on paper to say just start reframing your thoughts but yeah. because they're so rooted deep into you we have to work through the feelings aspect of it but after that then what we want to start doing is like recognizing like what what are the the, the narratives that are creating those feelings so in mm. Forky's narrative was a shame narrative that created this desire to be in the trash what are the narratives that you have at home where did they come from? And also then, as you know, as we're talking about this at home or even a therapeutic process, what are some new experiences that we can have mm. that can overwrite those? I mean, if you've been hurt in the church and you struggle with that, part of your healing journey is going to be a part of a church that can rewire those narratives, mm. can teach you new narratives. And that takes time and takes energy, mm. takes effort, but that's super important. New education, we're talking about scripture here mm. in a moment, um, new environments even. Those are things that we can start to do to begin to rewire those old narratives once we've become aware of what they are. Mm -hmm. And that's so, so important. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So would you take us through that a reframing activity now? There's one, again, we're including this in the digital bulletin. Uh, and when you mentioned this one to me, I, I just loved it. And would you lead us through this activity and tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, so there's a lot of different scriptures. Is a, a lot at the core of what we're talking about. A lot of it is our identity. And so how do we create new narratives and get rid of old narratives? Some of it is through this new education. And there's, there's scriptures in the Bible that, that have a lot of messages that can help begin to rewire our, our brain. Uh, Alex, I think last week you mentioned neuroplasticity. Yeah. It's a real thing. Like our brains can be physically rewired over time with new information. Mm -hmm. And so by creating new education that rewires those narratives and creates new narratives for us, it begins to create emotional change and behavior change. Yeah. One of the scriptures I found that's really helpful in doing that is Ephesians 1, 4, and 5. And there's six phrases in there that I underlined that I think are really important. So I'm going to read this scripture through, and then we're going to revisit those six in a second. Mm. So this is Ephesians 1, 4, and 5, the New Living Translation. It says, even before he made the world, God loved us mm. and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. Mm. God decided in advance to adopt us into mm. his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. Mm. So I want you at home now to close your eyes, and we're going to personalize this. We're going to take those statements and make, make them into I statements or me statements. Here's the first one. I am loved. God loves you for who you are and not what you can do, just for who you are because you are his child. I am chosen. My life has purpose. He's pursuing me. I am without fault in his eyes. Maybe there's something from your past that you've struggled with letting go and you hold that against you and you're consumed with guilt or shame. He says that you are without fault in his eyes. I am adopted. And in this case, I like to use the word pursued because that's really what he's saying there. He is pursuing you just like the prodigal father. I am wanted. And my life brings God great pleasure. 
Just like Forky brought Bonnie great joy and great pleasure just by his existence, God says that your life brings him pleasure just because you exist. And every day what I want you to do is, whether it's this scripture or other scriptures, if neuroplasticity is a real concept, then I want you to write this scripture on a three by five card. Mm. And each one of these affirmations, maybe you put a, one affirmation on each card mm. and you just go through those every morning and you start to go, I am loved, I am chosen. And over time, these are the messages that can begin to rewire our brains so we can reject those old faulty narratives mm -hmm. and begin to believe new mm -hmm. narratives about who God says that we are. Amen. Thank you for that, Rick. God's word is not just positive messaging. This is truth. This is true with a capital T about what's true about you, what's true about me, and what's true about reality. Those phrases, I am loved, God loves you. I am chosen. God is choosing you. And this morning, I just wonder, are we choosing him? God is pursuing you with a relentless love. He made you and he longs for a deep love relationship with you. Because friends, life is hard. And here at Life Church Livonia, we are real people with real flaws. We are following a real God. And we are working toward and experiencing his real life and life to the full as we do real life together. God is chasing you this morning. And I just wonder if you're going to turn and chase him back. You know, I have a one-year-old and um, one of her favorite games is to give me this look and then run, hoping I chase her. And she loves it when I chase her. But you know what's my favorite part? As I get really close, she slows down a little bit. She doesn't just want me to chase her. She wants me to catch her. She wants me to grab her and wrap her up and kiss her face and tell her how much I love her. And she wants to laugh and giggle. And God's chasing you this morning. And maybe you're here today. And you know God loves you. But you're not sure you've really chosen him. At least in the way you live. Maybe you're here this morning and you know you're searching for something, but you just haven't been able to put words to what it is. I want you to know it's Jesus. Jesus died on the cross for your sin and my sin. Friends, the brokenness in us and in the world, we're not just victims of it. We're perpetrators. We contribute to it. We do things that are against God's design that hurt people, that break the way he made the world to work. And when Jesus lived a sinless life and died on the cross for our sins, he took all that and put it to death that it might no longer separate us from this love of God. And when we say, Jesus, I receive your forgiveness on the cross. Forgive me of my sins and transform me, God, by helping me live in your way, your life and life to the full way. God changes us from the inside out. And this morning, his hands are reaching out to you for exactly that. And if you're here and you're feeling that pressure in your heart, you're feeling that weight on your chest, you're feeling that racing, I want you to know that is God. He is tapping on your heart. He is knocking on the door of your heart. And he's longing for you to open it that he might shower you in love as he catches you. And if that's you, I just want you to pray with me this morning. Father, Lord, I, I'm going to stop running from you. I believe that Jesus died for my sins and I receive that forgiveness. And I just ask right now in this moment that you would catch me. 
Lord, I pray that you would just shower me in your love in this moment. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would show me that I am not alone and that you are with me. God, I ask that you send your Holy Spirit afresh upon me and fill me with your love, Lord. Fill me with your voice. Fill me with your peace. And Lord, lead me in life and life everlasting. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. If you just prayed with me, please reach out to us. If we hit a nerve this morning and you go, man, that's me. I, I'm feeling this. I just don't know what to do. Again, please let us know via the digital bulletin. Click on that connection card. You are not alone and you are not made to walk this life alone. We want to walk with you. So please let us know and join us next week as we're going to be joined by Derek Jackson talking about ADD and ADHD. Have a great week and we'll see you next week.